It's the Americhicks with Molly Vote and Kim Monson. The most important story. They are like this newfound, off-hinged part of the left. Even Chuck Schumer's pushing back on. The latest in politics and world affairs. The buck is stopping with Trump. The different administrations prior to him have been kicking the can down the road on a number of issues. And opinions and ideas that prepare you to tackle the day ahead. The heart of this is, is the U.S. Constitution a progressive document, or is it something that should be looked at as an original document? It's the Americhicks, Molly and Kim. Because face it, ideas matter. Because ideas matter. Hey, welcome to the Ameritics World War II Project. I'm Molly Vote, And I'm Kim Munson. We are honored to be able to share the stories of real-life World War II vets. And today, we have a very special story for you. We have Fisk Hanley on the line. And he was one of the very few survivors of the Japanese Kempatai military police brutality. And these guys were the worst of the worst. These these military members, these the police, were worse than Hitler's Gestapo, if you can imagine something worse than that. And, and Fisk is going to tell his story today. But basically, he was a B-29 flight engineer attached to the 504th Bombardment Group. And uh, they were shot down. During their, I believe their seventh mission, but we'll get into those details. And he became um, basically I shot down on that seventeenth of November. Okay, twenty seventh of March. Okay, and I believe was that your seventh mission, sir? Seventh mission. Yes, sir. Okay, and then and then you were you were held uh, as as not even as what good good as a prisoner of war. You were you were held as worse than than that. They said you were special prisoners to be tried and executed. For for the killing of innocent women and children. And while you were awaiting trial for several months that we're going to get into during this show today, you were considered subhuman, starved on half of the regular POW rations. You were beaten almost daily, it looks like, from what I'm reading. You had no basic hygienic needs. Uh, very, very, very bad time. And uh, But at the very end, I love your story of the liberation, and I can't wait to get to that part. But first, Fisk, let's start... At the beginning, do you remember where you were when you heard that Pearl Harbor was bombed? Well, I was going to Texas Tech University in in, uh, Lubbock, Texas, and I had a date driving around listening to the car radio, and that's when I heard that uh, on December 7, 1941, that uh, the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor. Okay. What went through your mind, Fisk? What did you think about? I couldn't understand that. The Japs were friends of ours, so why? So I'm, I'm a student, and, uh, uh, well, that's all I knew. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened after that in your life? I... Well, I, I was, let's see, that uh, Pearl Harbor was 41, and I was a student out there at school, and I finished 41, 42, and graduated in 1943, in the spring, and uh, just uh, in fall of 1942, I got an official letter from the government saying, Greetings, you have been selected to serve in the armed forces. And this was in the fall. I graduated the following spring, was to graduate, and I didn't want to not graduate. So I joined up, went out to the recruiting office, and joined up and let me stay in school. And I was to be an aviation cadet in the Army Air Corps and be a maintenance officer for uh, Air Corps airplanes. So that looked good (laughs) and worked pretty good. Well, you graduated from college. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell us about uh, getting into the service then from college to getting into the military. Well, I graduated on white uh, one night in the spring of 43. Went down to the recruiting office, hadn't heard anything, and said, uh, or asked them when I was going to be called. I had my family's car, who were out there to see me graduate, and they said, here are your orders, and the train is waiting, and uh, you're on your way. 
I said, well, I got the card, and you didn't tell me all this. They said, well, your family will find the car. Go get on the train. (laughs) (laughs) So so I went down, and the train took me. It took a couple days to get down to, uh, let's see, Boca Raton, Florida, where the aviation cadet training area was, basic, for three months. And... uh, so that was rough, tough, hard enough before we became officers in the Air Force. And uh, after three months, I graduated down there and was sent to Yale University up in New Haven, Connecticut for six months where I learned to maintain airplanes. And uh, that was uh, very interesting up in that beautiful university town. And... Uh, there, there I was to graduate as a maintenance officer, which is my engineering degree, aero-engineering, fit. But toward the end of that six months, the Air Force informed about 20 of us. There were about 200 of us uh, maintenance officer cadets there. About 20 of us were picked out to be flight engineers on a B-29. We didn't know anything. Well, what's, what's a B-29? Well, yeah. well, I said, that's a new airplane that hadn't flown yet. So uh, they started training us uh, there uh, at the end of that six-month period to uh, uh, prepare to take flight training. So we graduated and got, I was commissioned a uh, second lieutenant February 4th, 1945, was that 44, 1944. And uh, then we were sent to Boeing Seattle where they made the B-29 and the first B-29 flight test airplane crashed while we were in school for three months there and killed the whole crew of 19 people on the ground and we were scared to death of it as we <laughs> went through school. So that didn't, that you know, was not good. But anyway, we graduated as uh, flight engineers from the Boeing School after the three months and we were sent to Lowry Field, Denver, uh, where we got flight training, but there were no B-29s available. So we trained in B-24 air bombers and B-17 bombers. And while we were there, part of our class was killed in the crash with B-24s. So we were experiencing bad troubles. Anyway, I gradu- we graduated from there and were sent to our individual airfields, which were B-29 airfields scattered around the country, three or four different airfields. I was sent to Nebraska. Uh, Fairmont, west of Lincoln, Nebraska, about 60 miles, and there in the Carnes fields there, I became part of the 504th Bomb Group, which was part of Curtis LeMay's 20th Air Force, and we began our training to go overseas and fight the Japanese. And uh, let's see. Uh, We didn't have any uh, B-29s, so we trained in B-17 airplanes. And uh, just uh, before we started overseas in the fall, let's see, that was late, just before Christmas 1944, uh, a couple of B-29s showed up, and we uh, were checked out flying those. And uh, while we were there, now this is interesting, uh, uh, Curtis, Curtis LeMay was brought over from Europe by General Arnold, head of the Air Force, and told to uh, the Air Force pilots, most of them refused to fly the B-29. And uh, so he was told to uh, convince these guys, these top people, that the B-29 was safe to fly. I don't know how long I have to talk, Jim, but (laughs) this is an interesting story. We've got time. Go ahead. This is interesting. Okay. And if you're just tuning in, this is the Ameritix World War II show. We're talking with Fist Okay, well, you can trim parts out. (laughs) This is mighty interesting, and I'm a 
probably the only witness around that knows the true story here. Well, we're excited so, to So Tibbetts told me this himself. He's, he was my friend. So he was told uh, uh, to do this. So what he did, he, the, the women air service pilots, women, were... Uh, uh, training to fly airplanes for the Air Force, and he picked the two brightest ones he could find, two pretty girls, and checked them out to fly the B-29. <laughs> And uh, he got them three days. I've got a little book that tells about this that they gave me, the wasp. And uh, so he got these two little girls to fly over an assembly of about 15 or 20 of these top officers, Air Force, to put on a little flight demonstration up in the boondocks somewhere. And they flew over these girls and beautiful uh maneuvers and so on, and then landed at this airfield and taxied up in front of all these gathered officers, and these two beautiful little girls climbed out, and Tibbets turned around to these men and said three uh, five, six words. He said, gentlemen, do you have a problem? And that was the end of the problem. <laughs> so, <laughs> these girls can fly these planes. You get over and, it. And he was proud of that. <laughs> and the wasps were proud of that. So that's that's when uh, we well we got B-29s. We, we trained just a couple of weeks, I guess, before we went to our overseas embarkation area. And we did that just for, as I told you, just a little bit before Christmas. And then we started overseas. And... Uh, we flew from uh, Nebraska to a place in Kansas, uh, Harrington, Kansas, which is an air port of embarkation to the Orient. And there we got our B-29 assigned to us and flew it a couple of times. And then we were ordered to head overseas. So we flew from there to uh, a field in California. And there we landed and uh, kind of processed for overseas. And uh, then we flew over and arrived on Tinian Island on the 12th of January, 1945. And that's where we started bombing uh, practice flights to Japanese airfields and Navy places and uh, getting shot at and so on <laughs> and, and sinking ships and doing a lot of damage to the Japanese in these islands over there. And uh, so uh, we bombed Iwo Jima and missed the target by two miles on kind of jet stream winds. B-29s had not done well three or four months before we, we started fighting uh, over in the CBI, China, Burma, India, because of jet stream winds, but they didn't know why they were missing the target. So we, on the, uh, see, that was on the 24th of January, 1945, discovered why we're bombing at high altitude, 25, 30,000 feet, and uh, not hitting anything. So we missed the airfield by two miles, the target, 80% of the bombs hit in the ocean and killed a whole bunch of fish, and 20% hit the edge of the island, the uh, uh, edge there, and we, we you know, looked down and saw all that sand blowing in the air, that wasn't any good, and uh, so the total bad, but after the war, I found out from the Marines, and this, we bombed it before they invaded it on the 19th. Of February 1945, and what we did, our bombs made these holes in the ground that saved them when they came in there because the Japanese had those beaches covered with mm -hmm. artillery fire. 
So when they came in, they couldn't dig holes in this coral that was about six inches underneath the sand we put in the air. So I became a foxhole builder. Nice. <laughs> so now, Fisk, was this at Iwo Jima? Or? Iwo Jima. Yeah. Wow. Iwo Jima. Well, you know, we yeah. heard, Fisk, how hard it was to, to dig a foxhole in Iwo Jima because they said because of, it, that because of the lava and because of the volcanoes the, the, yeah. that it was so hard for them to even dig them. It was like well, ash everywhere. They couldn't dig. See, there's coral rock yeah. there. And there's about six, eight inches of sand on top, and they couldn't dig holes in the ground to make foxholes. Mm. So here the Air Force did them a favor. Yeah. <laughs> well, we didn't think we'd done anything. Well, it's okay. that it worked out. So I am now an honorary Marine made so by a four-star Marine general, head of the Marine Corps, <laughs> when I went over there uh, a couple of years ago, because they, they, they wanted to know why I was there. And I said, I bombed Iwo, but I missed the target. Uh. So, <laughs> so I'm happy about that. So, so Hey, Fisk, uh, who, who is it? Which general is it that made you an honorary well, Marine? Well, it's uh, General Croxton. Okay. He forced to our general. Okay. <laughs> Excuse me. All right. So he's my friend. There were 30 Marines and me, one Air Force fella that visited there. About That was about three or three years ago. So uh, I'm very proud of being a Marine. <laughs> and when I see one, I just say Semper Fi to him. <laughs> so that's, that's how I started the war. Just a quick then, question. I, what, what does a flight engineer do on a B-29? What's your, what, now? what is your, what was your responsibility? Oh, flight engineer. Yes. Well, this B twenty nine was the first pressurized airplane, and it had powerful four four engines, and could fly uh, to Europe, but it never was used there because the war ended over there, and could fly to Tokyo round trip three thousand miles. Uh, and get back. <laughs> okay. So it was quite an airplane. And uh, so uh, that that's what won the war. We are bombings, atomic, not atomic, the uh, incendiary raids. We burned up four of the main Japanese cities, Tokyo, Kobe, Osaka, and Nagoya, to the ground. This is for the atomic bombs. See, that was, and I was on most of those missions, uh, incendiary missions, and got up to where my seventh mission, and that's the one I got shot down on, on the 27th of March, 1945. See, I was only there a couple of months. And uh, we were, this is a Sanch mission, no anti-aircraft fire and no um, uh, fighter uh, uh, attacks. But that's not true because the Japanese had broken our code for the invasion of Okinawa, and the main Japanese fleet was right under where we were dropping these naval mines to block that naval channel down there, and the battleship Yamato was right under us. Mm. And uh, it shot us down, all four engines on fire, the Bombay was on fire, and we did get our mines out, And uh, but... We they had to bail out. Yeah, Fisk, we, we we're going to get. Let's go to break, and then when we come back, let's talk about the bailout because because okay. this is when things get pretty darn serious. Because you are okay. one of the few survivors of the Japanese Empatai military true. police brutality, and we want to hear this story as hard as it's going to be. So stick with us story. through this commercial, story. where the Americhicks will be right back with Fisk Hanley, World War II veteran. Hey, welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project. I'm Kim Munson. I'm Molly Vogt. And we are honored to have on the line with us Fisk Hanley II. He uh, was shot down over uh, Japan in World War II and ended up in a uh, Kempe Thai military uh, camp and uh, was a prisoner of war. And we want to hear that story at this particular point in time before we went to break. We're talking about the bailout. Your B-29 has been hit. You said all of the engines are on fire. The bomb, bomb bay is on fire. Uh, so let's take it from there, Fisk. 
Okay. So that was in, at the night time, 5,000 feet altitude. And the airplane, uh, my job was to keep the engines running so we could get back out to sea where the Navy had uh, patrol boats and uh, some, uh, well, submarines. And uh, let's see, uh, submarines and some flying boats. So we were hoping we'd get out there, but we were in such bad shape that uh, we had to bail out. And just two of us got out of this airplane. I could see from my station, uh, engines on or my side of the airplane were burning, and the the, the uh, gunners told me all of them were. Of course, the bomb bay was on fire. So it was, when I bailed out, well, that's the story I'm going to tell you now. Uh, here I'm trying to keep these engines running, and I don't know what to do. And the bomb bay's on fire. There's only two ways to get out of the airplane, through the bomb bay or through the nose wheel hatch uh, right beside my station. So I knew I couldn't get out through the bomb bay, and the nose wheel was stuck in place. And I didn't know, I didn't control that. The pilot's dead up front. And so I'm waiting and trying to save them and uh, me. <laughs> and the, the interphone got shot out. That so we really didn't know what was going on. So uh, the navigator wanted a fire extinguisher beside my station to fight the bomb bay fire. He opened the bomb bay door and started fighting the fire. And that's when he and the radio operator were burned to death quickly. Oh. And the flames came in there, and I couldn't breathe, so I reached down beside my station and opened the nose wheel hatch, and there's a wheel in place there, not down, and but that blew the planes back into the bomb bay so I could breathe. So that was good, but I didn't know what to do, and with the gear in place and run by electric wires coming through the bomb bay, I knew it wouldn't go down, but it did go down while I was holding that door open and a figure from up front there were three people up there the pilot co-pilot and bombardier uh, one of those people it was night so you couldn't see anything and the interphone nothing I didn't know what was going on this figure came out and, and the gear went down and he bailed out well uh, I had needed a command for me to bail out but if someone went out I figured it was time so I got up and jumped out of the airplane, and uh, now I'm floating down over Japan at a pretty low altitude, and uh, of course I'm praying to God, but what do you do first? Well, that's the praying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you did. And, and, and Fisk, I, I remember reading in your book, uh, Accused American War Criminal, that you said that when you jumped out of the B-29, you passed through the flames. Your hair was burnt off. Oh, your exposed right. head, that's, your hands. That's true. My everything's hair. burning. I was pretty badly burned just from that and of course I got shot too I didn't know that at the time uh, my rear end was all shot up <laughs> <laughs> but that was from the flak right that's from the flak yeah. yeah and so you were you're you're going down and you're trying to find the rip cord on your parachute and you oh, can't yeah, figure out where it, it is tell after the story praying then what do you do next well I reached for the parachute rip cord that wasn't there and I thought, oh my gosh what is <laughs> and then I remembered I had a armor plate on my over my chest and so I reached down under there and there was a parachute rip cord. I pulled it and the parachute open. Yeah. So now I'm coming down, didn't know how to surrender. We'd never been briefed on that. Didn't know whether they were even capturing anybody. And uh, I'm looking down and I'm over land and that's good. And then I see a lot of rice farmers down there circling where I was gonna land and uh, so and I had a 45 automatic under my left arm there, and I've what am I going to do? Pull that out and try to shoot some of them, or just surrender? So I decided no, <laughs> I'm just going to surrender. So I hit the ground and um, and uh, separated from the chute, and then these people, about a hundred or so of them, men, women, and children closed in on me and uh, were in the process of killing me, and they killed nine out of ten people that bailed out over there. 
and uh, so, but I didn't know all this. So while they're in the process of this, a figure taller than me, because Japanese are little people, waded into the midst of this, and this is a Japanese policeman, knocked him down several times, but he got me away from it because they're scared of cops, and got me, and I'm captured alive. And uh, that's when I became a prisoner of the Japanese. And uh, just two of us got out. The co-pilots, one bailed out ahead of me. And there were eight other crew members, even though the B-29 carried 11. We didn't have a tail gunner on count. No opposition. So eight of our people went down in the airplane and uh, didn't make it back. And their bodies have been recovered with help from me. <laughs> later after the war and that's good that's another story in itself <laughs> and uh and fisk i remember reading you know you you did know should you try to shoot them or should you surrender and, no, I, and i'm I, sure I you decided, thought i should surrender I, if because I pull that gun they would kill me of yeah. course they tried to kill me anyway yeah. so i left that gun where it was and uh, this policeman saved me and took me into a little bitty japanese village uh, Kia and uh, there I was in the mayor office and bled I didn't know I was wounded and bled all over his pretty sofa and <laughs> that's when I found out I was wounded <laughs> <laughs> on the rear and end he found it out yeah. and he wasn't happy yeah. this mayor of course it was about 2 or 3 a.m. and uh, so I got some rough treatment there but I did get some medical treatment all while well, we were special prisoners, turned over them to the Kimpi Tai, the Japanese Secret Service, who were mean to everybody, including their own troops. And uh, but I, I didn't see them for about, I guess, a week, because I was down there in southern Japan, over Kyushu Island, 700 miles south of Tokyo, and uh, so. Uh, we, I was with these uh, regular Japanese army, and I got medical treatment twice down there, even though the order was out for all special prisoners, which we beat 29 people were. No medical attention, only one half regular prisoner rations, and uh, tougher treatment. So uh, once after about a few days uh, traveling around to different military bases and being questioned. Uh, we were turned over. There were uh, 13 of us captured that night, one B-29 crew, completely 11 people, and Al Andrews, my co-pilot, and I were captured. So uh, there were 13 of us together, and uh, we went through all the processing and beatings and all of that, and interrogations, and uh, then after about two weeks, uh, Kimpy Tai showed up and took us over, and then we were taken somewhere, and it turned out Tokyo, middle of Tokyo, right across the Emperor's Palace, into a dungeon there. And that's where we were not prisoners of war, but badly treated and no medical attention. We were starved to death. Anybody that was badly wounded died. And, well, that's the way it is. You read the book. Yeah. Terrible. It was. And that's why I had to write that book. And, and, and the book that we're talking about is by Fisk Hanley II. It's called Accused American War Criminal. And one of the few survivors of Japanese Kimpi Tai military p- uh, police brutality. And Fisk, uh, where can people get this book? Well, they can get it on Amazon. Uh, it's uh, that publisher hadn't done good, and uh, so I'm getting that canceling that contract, <laughs> and uh, we will sell them out of Fort Worth and advertise them. They've never been advertised, so on. But Amazon, you know, with this bad publisher, Echo Press up in Vermont, uh, no good. <laughs> bad. <laughs> well, you know what? You know, Fisk. We will. Uh, we are going to put your the link to your information 
information on our Ameritix Facebook page. And if anybody wants to get this book, reach out to the Ameritix via the Ameritix website, and we'll we'll get that to you. Because I love it, Fisk. I've been reading it. I've been crying like like crazy. And and one of the well, things, Fisk, you know, you keep repeating over and over in your book two things. One is that you kept praying to God. That's true. And you kept acknowledging that He was answering your prayers. Absolutely. I just wonder, and the other was the song, the the tune that you kept saying in your mind through all of it, accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative. That's true. Where did that come from? Well, the night before, or the day before, we had Armed Forces Radio, and they played, and we listened to it on Tinian there, and they just played this brand new song I'd never heard before, Accentuate the Positive, Eliminate the Negative, and when I bailed out, that song just kept rolling through my head as I bailed, as I descended to the ground, so that, that was unusual. But there are 14 times in my book that I faced certain death. I was going to die. Now, the good Lord saved me 14 times. Why? And uh, so the other day, not the other day, a couple of months ago, I spoke to a little Baptist church up in North Texas, and the preacher and I, on a Sunday, a little bitty church, uh, after we preached, he and I, <laughs> I'm not a preacher, but I was asked to talk to these to these few people in that church. Uh, he came up and talked to me, and I asked him, why did the good Lord save me? And he told me, and this is an important story I want to pass to people. He said, the good Lord, for those 14 times that you didn't die, saved you for this reason, to tell the world about bad people and how they can be mean to each other and not need to. And I said, I never thought about that. So that's why I'm here. How about that? Uh, well, I love it, and I'm glad. You know, it, it seems so easy to to get art, to get angry with somebody who you think believes differently as you do, and and obviously war is hell, and and a lot of the citizens, you know, may not want to fight, but but you know their government tells them they have to, and you never know, you know, what sure. they're what they're feeding them and telling them that they have to do. I mean, you when you're you you're in these several different prison camps, yeah. you you're removed consistently, and you said you were treated like like an animal, like less than human. Worse than an animal. Worse than that. I mean, you were beaten almost every day, it seems, Fisk. You bet. You bet. And you you questioned, why did they keep asking you? They poisoned my wounds. I had about 30 wounds. They purposely poisoned each one of them. Yeah. Trying to kill me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, And you said, why did they keep asking you? Why were they interrogating you? They kept pulling you out, asking you the same questions over and over. Tell us, you know, why do you think that? And what were they asking you? Well, the the main drive behind their questioning was this. How do the American people feel about this war? Are they getting tired of it? That was their main drive, because they had broken our code completely. They knew more about our upcoming invasion to be on 1 November 1945 of the southern Jap island of Kyushu, Operation Downfall, then, then we didn't know anything. We knew it was going to be invaded sometime, but uh, they knew it the whole story. And they're, the way they were going to end World War II was to commit 15 to 20 men, million men, women, and children to die on that beach. Over 2 million combat-hardened troops on that beach. Over 12,000 kamikaze uh, people that would sink every ship we had had in that invasion fleet, and they they never set foot on Japan soil, and uh, our government would be would settle an honorable peace treaty with the Japanese. So the uh, atomic bombs, which came, and I didn't tell you about Tibbetts, but he, of course, he dropped the bomb. He was told to get the best. Air Force squadron, and he that came out of my group. 
out of Kansas, or not Kansas, Nebraska. And so that was our the squadron that dropped that bomb as part of our people. Mm. And uh, that ended the war and saved millions and millions of Japanese and Americans and me, all prisoners. There were over 200,000 Allied prisoners of the Japanese mm-hmm. at the end of the war. This, you know, there are there are people today that that say we should not have dropped the atomic bombs on Japan. They, they were told that that was just cruel. Remind them the reason that it had to be done. Well, it saved what I just told yeah. what it saved. So if it, that bomb had not been dropped, even though the B-29s had really destroyed Japan, <laughs> major cities, that invasion would have taken place, and we would have lost three or four million people and all of our ships and uh, all these 200,000 prisoners of war. So you can see that the atomic bomb had to be used. And it had, if it had an invasion, well, that, that was downfall. Operation Olympic on 1 March 1946 was to hit Tokyo. And here, if we, <laughs> we'd never gotten around to that because we, we, all of our boats had been sunk <laughs> and our, our army. So, see, my book tells about all that. And that's the only book that I know of that's come out that, that tells all of that. Well, we want everybody to read this book. It's Accused American War Criminal by Fisk Hanley II. And this is on the Americhicks Facebook page as well, so you can go get this information there. We're going to go to break. And when we come back, Fisk, I want to ask you, you know, you had the opportunity after being beaten day after day after day after day and starved. You have been given the opportunity by your captors to, to turn on the United States, and they were going to send you to what you thought was the country club of, of prisoner camps. Oh you would God. have food. You would have medical care. You would have a warm bed. And you said no. You stood up and oh said, I am my. going to take this torture, and I am not oh. turning in my country. And so, true. So, so, Fisk, we're going to go to break. When we come back, we want to hear that story. Welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Molly Vogt. And Kim Munson. We're on the phone with Fisk Hanley II. Check out his book, Accused American War Criminal. Fisk was one of few survivors of the Japanese Kempatai military police brutality, and these guys were the worst of the worst. They were worse than, than Hitler's Gestapo. And so Fisk was in uh, many different camps as a prisoner uh, until he was he was uh, liberated and we're going to talk about that that was in august the liberation 1945 but real quick before we went to break fisk i was asking you 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 know with all the beatings and all the starvation and and all of the everything the bad treatment you had day after day after day and and your captors gave you the opportunity to turn on the americans Turn in some information, and you had information. You knew about uh, two of the operations that were coming up. You, you said you didn't know, and you didn't turn on the Americans. You stood up and took that abuse, and it could have killed you. Why didn't you? Well, um, the Kempe Tires, uh, as I said, uh, or the top intelligence unit, big, big operation of the Japanese military. And, uh, and here I am, we're to be tried and executed, all of the B-29 people. That was, and they killed most all of them, nine out of ten. But anyway, so in the course, and I was an engineer, and the Japanese think engineers know everything about everything. <laughs> so these really so sharp, most engineers. they spoke better English than me, <laughs> these interrogators. And Kempitai headquarters right across from the Emperor's Palace in downtown Tokyo, and I'm in a dungeon there. So almost every day I was put under questioning and beatings and all of that. So uh, they wanted to know... Uh, 
knew that the invasion was going to take place. What I knew about it, well, I, I, I did. I, all I knew was the invasion dates for those two invasions. I told you about Kyushu and Honshu. That's all I knew those dates, and and I'm not supposed to know those. <laughs> so I told them I didn't know it, and they said, "Well, uh, uh, you're an intelligent engineer. How would you do it?" And I said, "We're in the Philippines. They're beating the hell out of me." So I told them wrong. I said, well, and I knew it was wrong. We're in the Philippines, go over to China, move up the coast, get you from the backside. You're expecting one on the east side, I'm sure. <laughs> and they're writing all this down, even though they know that this is all wrong. <laughs> so uh, they did that. But that's one of the stories. But the other thing is this special prisoners. No, no, not special prisoners. What were they called? Uh, well, they had a word for it. said in my book. Can't remember it. Mm. Uh, but they had a... Uh, they signed up people like me uh, who agreed, like Tokyo Rose, to serve... Oh, the propaganda prisoners. Right. That's what they propaganda. were called. To be propaganda prisoners and to just tell over the radio to the American public what they wanted these people to tell as Americans of how great the Japanese were and so on, so on, so on. And these are propaganda prisoners. They're turncoats. They're, they're bad. And uh, I don't know how many they had, but when I saw them uh, out at Camp Amore, uh, some of those were, I don't know how many they had, but probably uh, oh, uh, 20 or 30 of them anyway. And uh, they were out in Camp Amore. That's where I was rescued from. And they were poisoned out there. The other prisoners, 700 prisoners, uh, are trying to kill them. <laughs> blame them. And, and uh, bad guys. I don't know what happened to them afterward. Uh, I'm sure they were disciplined or something. And uh, so that, that, that was a bad part of the war because I guess uh, there are bad people in any service and so on. But I damn sure didn't do it. <laughs> and uh, and I was, good Lord saved me. So I, I, I got rescued on the uh, 27th of uh, August, 1945. From camp. I was moved from Kempitai, the dungeon, after the emperor spoke on the 14th of August, 45, and surrendered. And those of us that were still alive were uh, taken out to the ocean uh, there off of Tokyo and uh, turned over to the, I guess there were about uh, 20 or 30 of us left, turned over to the uh, regular army out there where the other 700 prisoners were. And uh, that's uh, Camp Amore, which is in the Unbroken, the movie in the book. And that's where we got double rations. And, uh, and I weighed 70 pounds when I got out there. I weighed 170 before I, when I got shot down. So I'm doing pretty good. Wow. And uh, so... Uh, that's, that's where uh, Admiral Halsey's third fleet out there in Tokyo Bay, which he came in to uh, take over Japan or help, and uh, he sent the Marines in, uh, even though MacArthur said no prisoners can be released, can be rescued, liberated, until I signed the peace treaty on September 2nd, and Halsey st- said to hell with MacArthur, go get those boys right now at that camp over there. Mm. So uh, we were rescued uh, on the 29th of August, a very important day in my life, in spite of MacArthur. So that's the way it is. Thankfully. (laughs) And, you know, in Fisk Hanley II, in your book, Accused American War Criminal from World War II, I heard that when you all were in the camp, the way you found out you were going to be liberated is a Navy plane flew over and dropped a message like a piece of paper, and oh. y'all y'all got it, and you were trying to figure out is this real or not. What, was it was 
it really just a piece of paper? How did they get that to you? Well, it was a note uh, with a weight on it, and he just flew over and dropped it, and it hit in the camp, and wow. it said, uh, tomorrow you will be liberated. And tomorrow was the 27th of, uh, of uh, August, and uh, so we all got dressed up real good as best we could, <laughs> and uh, uh, that's when uh, in the afternoon we waited all morning, nothing, and uh, there are a lot of very important people in that camp. I don't know how long I could talk, but I could talk about some of those people, but anyway, uh, we're that, about mid-afternoon, uh, these uh, landing craft came in with the Venus looking Marines I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> that was landed. a good thing. <laughs> oh my, yes. Beauty sight. And Captain and r- rescued us. Most of the guards had run away. And uh, But a real bad event happened there uh, before. Uh, we had airplanes flying over after that 14th of August uh, dropping food cans and cigarettes, Navy planes, and finally B-29s. But the worst thing happened that I ever saw almost was this Marine torpedo bomber flew over with a torpedo bay full of mounds, cases of mounds candy bars and very accurately put those in the middle of the uh, uh, the toilet pit. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) The worst aim in the world. That was was awful, but we we survived that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, Fisk Hanley, what was it like? When did you first see the American flag? Oh, well, that's important. Um, of course, we, in that prison camp after, you know, the war was over, used McCure, Chrome, and Hank, and whatever we could, made flags for the Allies, including the American flag, so we had that. But these Marine coming in, and these boats, each one boat had that American flag flying. That's one of the most beautiful sights I have ever seen. I'll never forget it. And I've got something else I'd like to say, too, Kim, is that we were taken, I was still badly wounded after six months, so the few of us, I guess about 20 of us, the worst wounded in this whole camp of 700 people, were taken out to a beautiful site. There was a great big ship out there, white, with a big red cross on the side of it. It was a hospital ship, Mandelvlitz. And they docked beside that that ship, and we looked up, and I'm climbing up the gangplank to get up to the deck, and another beautiful sight. Beautiful American nurses in starched white uniforms, <laughs> looking over there, grinning and shouting at us. <laughs> so I have to tell people when I talk about that that the American flag and those pretty American girls, <laughs> nurses. And, and you that? and you said also that how quickly, as soon as everybody in the camp found out that they were going to be liberated in the next couple of days, that they made their own flags. They made makeshift flags. And these are all of our allies. There were many different flags there. Uh, mm-hmm. how, what did they find to make flags? Where did they what? They well, made them. Out of what? Oh, parachutes. Okay. Mm-hmm. In the camp. Because we didn't have any bed lemon. So uh, somehow, I guess they got their hands on some of the parachute silk. Mm-hmm. And here I'm in this picture of the rescue. It's pictures in my book, and it's a famous picture. You, all over is when about the first liberation that was the first camp liberated, and here is Fisk Hanley in that picture on the far left side holding a Dutch flag. Now, why in the world I'm holding a Dutch flag? I don't know. But anyway, that's what I'm doing. I'm <laughs> happy. <laughs> oh, I'm looking at it right now. I'm looking at it right now. That's I awesome. See that. Oh, my yeah, well, That's a famous picture. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. No matter what flag it is, as long as it's not the Japanese flag. That's right. That's right. And you oh, said yeah. that everybody broke out into song, and they were singing their national anthems. Oh, yep, yep. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> and real quick, last thing, just about the the your first meal, because you had been for how many months were you in captivity? Right at six months. Okay. And you were basically, before you got to this camp, which was a little bit nicer, you were surviving on oh, one gosh, rice ball food. a day. See, the prisoners fed prisoners there. And, of course, uh, after the armistice emperor surrendered, they had access to more food and all that stuff. The, our own forces were dropping down there. We had food running out our ears. And uh, so... Uh, they they feeding all of us. The South is still the special prisoners. We were out there. We were uh, barbed wired into a special barracks there where Pappy Boynton and a lot of other famous people were in there. And we're still, well, I guess the Japs were still figuring on killing us. I don't know. <laughs> because we were segregated from the other 700 prisoners. Yeah. <laughs> Well, so, Fisk Hanley, this has been an amazing interview. Kind of a last thought. What would you say to the young people of America today? Well, number one is if you fight a war, win. Mm. And we did. Mm. And number two, uh, be prepared and be educated right and see where our education system and the children today and our politicians and all that we've got to straighten out this this country and uh, and raising children right is one of them and so that's that's about all i can say uh, fight to win <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. um. And in, in, in your in your book, and we're gonna we're gonna put this on our Facebook page. So everybody, check out the Americhicks Facebook page. We've got accused American war criminal, and this is Fisk Hanley the Second's book. And and in this book, you you kept saying what you were repeating over and over and over. What was what was the what was the repeating words that you were saying in your mind that got you through this five months of hell? The words. I don't understand. Well, I, I had that you were singing that song, Accentuate the oh, Positive. Accentuate the Positive. Well, no, that, that went away. And eliminate but the negative. But. I, will, I would like to say this, though. When I came back, liberated home with my parents, trying to restore myself to uh, civilization and living, I couldn't sleep. Nightmares. And we didn't know what post-traumatic stress syndrome, and I had a bad case of it, and I didn't know what to do. No one, doctors didn't know. So I took my college typewriter and typed out every day a few pages, and uh, I was going with all these pretty American Airlines stewardesses and take a few pages time down where about eight of them lived a couple of blocks from me and these highly educated ladies corrected all of those and as they did I put them in a folder and that's where that book accused American war criminal came and that was buried until I retired from general dynamics in 1989 from 1945 to 1989, that was buried. I didn't talk about it. I didn't think about it. It's gone. And that's how that book came about. That's why it's so thorough and uh, well-written, thanks to those American stewardesses. So that's that's how it came about. Okay. And it will be republished here pretty quick because there's some very powerful people that are on my side now. They're going to cancel that contract with that no-good publisher, <laughs> and these will be on the market. Well, that's, that's exciting. So uh, be sure and check it out. It's the story of uh, Fisk Hanley II, uh, accused American war criminal. Yep. Well, this is the Ameritics, Molly and Kim, in our World War II project. Thank you so much, Fisk Hanley. God bless you. We appreciate you for sharing your story with us.